Hello and welcome. The following message is from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. So as I was preparing for this message, I was coming up against all these themes of actually about like bullying. And I came to this amazing realization that most of the movies that I loved when I was a kid were about bullies. Like apparently, apparently every movie in the 1980s was about standing up to bullies. I, I could list dozens of them. But here's, here's just a few. Uh, the Karate Kid was about bullying. Never Ending Story was about a kid standing up to bullies. Uh, the Goonies were a bunch of kids who'd been bullied. Uh, there's way, way more. Top Gun has a bully in it. Revenge of the Nerds. Weird Science. The Breakfast Club has a bully. It's the principal. Stand By Me. The Lost Boys. Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Again, again it's the principal. Remember A Christmas Story? A Christmas Story is about, is about bullying. Back to the Future. Teen Wolf. Uh, we could go on and on, but... Apparently, you couldn't make a 1980s movie unless you had some, like, two-dimensional, thick-necked, over-actor, handsome, tough guy who intimidates somebody who's new to the school or new to the business and calls them names and sometimes trips them in the hall and gets a room full of people laughing at them. In lots of cases, they end up, like, pouring a milkshake on their head. That was That's apparently a thing that happened a lot in the 80s. And by the end of the movie, the hero wins by embarrassing the bully, by like by getting tough and, and strong and making himself better and, and bigger. And he, and he wins the power struggle and embarrasses the bully. Well, that was sort of the 1980s formula. Okay. And so when I was picked on as a kid in the 1980s, I, I responded in the same way because it's really all that I knew. Like, you might not know this. My family didn't have a lot of money because because there's eight kids in my family. I'm from a family of ten. And so we shopped for clothes at this secondhand store called the Amity. And I was super self-conscious about it because the kids at school made fun of my clothes because they were out of style and, and, and well-worn and stuff. And so they actually, the kids called me Amityville. They called me Amityville. Well, I remember one day in grade six, our class teacher took our whole class outside to play kick baseball, divided us into two teams, and we were going to play kick baseball. And it was my favorite thing to do. And this this one Friday in particular, we were over at the park playing kick baseball, and I was sitting on the bench getting ready to take my turn, and I was cheering for the person on my team who was up and getting ready to kick. And I remember the pitcher from the other team was a kid named Octavio. And I'll never forget him because he was a bully. And this day in particular, I had just been cheering. And, and and after I finished cheering, Octavio said, Shut up, Amityville. And all of the kids laughed. And I snapped. Now, I was not a big kid. And the the next thing that I knew, I was sprinting across the ball diamond. And I leapt up in the air. And I'm not sure why I did that, I, but all of a sudden I'm, I'm like Wolverine leaping through the air. And I remember that I was throwing punches at Octavio before my feet even touched the ground. And what's really interesting about this is my teacher watched the whole thing happen and he didn't try to stop me. And, and so at the time, I felt like I'd won. I felt like I had put Octavio in his place. I know now that wasn't to win. I know that if anybody won in that exchange, it certainly wasn't me. It was Octavio. 
because Octavio learned that he could push my buttons and he could control me. He could make me lose my cool any time that he wanted if he just called me Amityville. And so what happened there is I gave him my power. I gave him power over me. You know what that's like? Well, years later, I was an art student at Sheridan College in Oakville. I was studying art and and working on an art diploma. It was a great year. I had my own apartment and I was I had my own car. I was painting and drawing and sculpting all the time. I had my guitar. It was the best year. I was also a baby Christian. And I tried to use my art in order to share my faith. And at first, the students in my cohort, they thought it was kind of cool and unique that there's something, you know, different about me. They thought it was kind of cool. And and I was certainly not the best artist in the school by any means, but there was a time when my art was displayed at the school gallery. But by February and March, I noticed that things were changing and I and I would get skipped when when we would take turns as students presenting our our pieces and explaining what they mean. I would get skipped. And and I remember one day in particular handing in a, a piece to my sculpting professor and it was this sculpture of of uh of Christ bearing the weight of the globe on on his shoulders the weight of the world on his shoulders and and the whole class watched as the professor you know took this sculpture in her hands and looked down at it and went and then the biggest eye roll you ever saw followed by an oh my god and i was i was embarrassed i was humiliated i was like um did, did i not do what you asked and she said, yeah, it's just, and she never really finished that sentence, you know, because what, what could she say? And I realized kind of what was going on. And I said, well, I, I guess you're kind of getting tired of it, aren't you? And she goes, yes, like Mike, I get it. You're super religious. Great. We get it. Move on. Can we please talk about something else? And, you know, I just, I felt like that kid again. I felt powerless and small. Now, for sure, there were better artists than, than me, but I, I loved art and I, I had some talent. And I gave up on art after that because I learned that as a Christian, my peers thought my stuff wasn't real art. And maybe that's not every artist's experience. Maybe that's not everybody's experience if they're a Christian artist. But that was certainly my experience. And so something something died in me. I just I wasn't strong enough to deal with the opposition that I was going to get. And I reconsidered my entire calling after that. Art was plan A for me. And after this, uh, I transferred to the University of Guelph and I got a degree in history. And it was the same situation I was in when I was a kid. I had allowed them to convince me that I don't belong, that my ideas weren't important, that my voice didn't matter. I, I, I totally, I let them control me. I let them back me down and intimidate and conquer me. And I believed that I deserved it. Now, I bet we could go around the room and we could hear all kinds of similar stories. Most of you have been bullied and some of you it happened when you were in school. Some of you it's at the workplace and some of you it's, it was at home. All of us have been bystanders to bullying. And some of us, we don't want to admit it. But the truth is that there's somebody out there who remembers you as their bully. So whether you are 
a bully or you have been bullied or you're the bystander. Everybody has been through this. Everybody's seen this. Now, you know, what's interesting, though, is that beliefs about bullying have changed. Like when I was a school teacher, we thought that bullies have low self-esteem, they have low self-worth. And so what a bully is trying to do is they're looking for an easy target in order to make themselves feel better and stronger. And so we would tell kids the way that you fight back against a bully is to show them that you're tougher and smarter than they are so that they'll back down. But you know, what we know now is that most bullies are actually super confident, very, very assured. And many actually come from very loving homes where they've got a, a mom and a dad there and the parents provide for them. And they're, they're actually kind of privileged. And the reason a bully targets you isn't because you're weak. They target you because they are entitled and you're, some, you're kind of a mystery to them. So what do you do with a mystery? Well, you, you poke at it, you pull it apart a little bit and you try to conquer it. And so what a bully wants to do is to conquer you and disempower you and, and take you apart a little bit and add your power to his own. That's what a bully wants. That's how a bully wins. And that's why bullying happens in so many different ways. Like there's the violent physical bully. And that's the common one that we saw in the 1980s. And, but there's also the mean girl bully who never touches you but excludes you from the cool group. Then there's the, the critic who just wears you down with constant nitpicking and, and criticism and sarcasm. There's the passive aggressive bully who attacks you with insults that feel like compliments at the time. But then you go away and you realize, wow, that person was actually making fun of me. There's the victim bully who controls you by, you know, positioning themselves as your victim and they make themselves look like the good guy and make you look like the bad guy. There's the institutional bully who uses their influence and their authority in the school or in the organization and they use it against you. Like, we've seen all of these kinds of, of bullying in our lives. We've, we've seen these and, and there's so many different kinds and yet each of them has the very same effect. They crush your spirit. They make you feel powerless and worthless. Now, why are we talking about this today? We're talking about this because in today's section of the book of Amos, the prophet finds himself in a situation that actually looks a lot like bullying. Now, we've been in the book of Amos for a couple of months now. We've been learning that God has some very important, very specific things to say to cities where there's, you know, corruption and where there's systemic injustice and where there's oppression. And, and, and last week, God had some especially hard words for the, like, the Marie Antoinettes in the culture, like the privileged class who they just, they don't care about the suffering of their neighbors and this morning, Amos interrupts the prophecy. He like pauses the prophecy and there's this confrontation that he records, this narrative confrontation between him and somebody who wants to shut him down. And as I've studied this, this confrontation, I realize I've seen this before. I've seen this a hundred times. This is bullying. And I think in, in many ways, I think we can relate to this. In many ways, any of us could be an Amos. Okay, because whatever it means for you to be faithful to Jesus in your life, whatever it means for you to obey him and to follow him, you're going to have people who want to make you stop. There's going to be people who want to shut you down. Okay, and it's really helpful to see how someone like Amos responds. 
because Amos believes he is just doing what God put him here to do. And so it's really helpful to see how he responds to the bullies. So first, let's meet our bully. Who are we talking about here? Now, the tricky thing is that this bully doesn't look like one. Amos's bully is, in verse 10, Amaziah the priest of Bethel. Okay, his name's Amaziah. He is the priest of Bethel. He's a really important guy. He is, in those days, he's like a pope because he's the priest of the temple at Bethel. And so, and in the same way that the pope is the bishop of Rome, and Rome is like the center of the Roman Catholic faith, Amaziah is important because he's the priest of the temple in Bethel, and Bethel's the capital of the northern kingdom. So, so he's basically a pope. He's powerful, he's respected, he's close with the king, and if you had been there in those days watching this thing unfold, you would probably side with him against Amos. Like you would see Amos and what he's saying to the, the people of Israel, and you would assume Amos is just some troublemaker. He's not trained, he's, he's got no special name or, or pedigree. He just, he should stay in his lane and he should leave the teaching uh, to the priest. And that's what we would think. And we would be wrong, okay? We'd be wrong because Amos has been called by God. He's been called. He's been handpicked by God. He's a, he's a prophet. He, in fact, he's a good prophet. He's a faithful prophet. And Amaziah wants to silence him. And he's going to go to great lengths to try and make that happen. Now, let's see how this unfolds. And as we do, we're going to ask whether this really is bullying. I actually don't think it's that hard to see because there's a bunch of ways in which Amaziah really kind of, he fights dirty. Okay, he fights dirty. And it begins with gossip. He begins with gossip. In verse 10, we read that Amaziah sent a message to Jeroboam, the king of Israel. So Amaziah's starting point is to go behind Amos's back and take his complaint to the king first, rather than take it to Amos. Now, this, so now, now just to be clear, not every time that you talk about a person who's not in the room, not every time is, is it gossip. But in, in this situation... It is, because what Amaziah is trying to do is he's going to the king in order to win him to his side before he talks to Amos. Like he's trying to recruit an ally in order to go to Amos. And that's when that's how, when you can know that it's gossip, okay? Now, I would just, I'd be interested to see, just by maybe a show of hands, how many of you have been in a conflict that could have been solved if the person had just gone to you first and instead they gossiped? Wow, yeah, like almost every hand, for sure. Yeah. So this is really this is a really tricky place for Amaziah to start, is with, with gossip. Well, another thing that we, we see about his approach here is that he actually, he lies and he exaggerates about Amos. In verse 10, he tells the king in his letter that Amos is raising a conspiracy. He's like, raising a conspiracy? Like, and I'm like, that's not true, Amos. There's nothing political about what Amos is trying to do. He's not starting a conspiracy. He's just trying to preach what he understands to be the truth. In verse 11, Amaziah quotes the prophet saying that Jeroboam will die by the sword. Well, that's an interesting thing for Amaziah to say because Amos, Amos never said that. He never said that. In chapter 7, he said, the high places of Isaac will be destroyed. With my sword, I will rise against the house of Jeroboam. That's God talking. But that's not the same as as. Amos saying that Jeroboam will die by the sword. That's not the same. But Amaziah is really smart, you see. 
Because if he can twist Amos's words, if he can exaggerate Amos's uh, offense, if he can put words in Amos's mouth, he wins. Now, how many of us have been in a conflict like that? How many of us have been in a conflict with someone who lied about us or put words into our mouths? Yeah, it's really, it's really, really troubling. It's dishonest. It's upsetting. Well, another thing to notice is how Amaziah tries to control and to dominate Amos. This might be kind of subtle, but he's using his influence as a priest against Amos. So again, in verse 10, he's, he's like, King, can you believe what Amos has done here? Like of all, of all the places, he's here in the very heart of Israel. Can you believe it? How dare he? And that's when he goes to Amos in uh, verse 12. He says, he asks, when he finally does go to Amos, he asks him no questions. He just says, get out of here, you seer. Go back to where you came from. Now, for Amaziah, a person in his, in his position, to say that to someone in Amos's position, you got to understand that this is Amaziah pulling rank, saying, I outrank you. I'm more powerful than you are. I'm more important than you are. I'm from Israel. You're not. I'm the priest. You're not. You know, you're not even from around here, Amos. And so you're going to listen to me if you know what's good for you. You see, this is all politics. It's all control. How many of us have been in a conflict with someone who wouldn't talk about the problem? Instead, they, they, they would prefer to use their influence and their power in the institution to back you down. Like, oh, uh, that's not how we do it around here. Oh, when you, you know, when you've been around here as long as I have, you know how things work course you've you've been through this and in the same way Amaziah is using his authority to control and to dominate and to intimidate Amos it's very dirty very dirty well another interesting tactic tactic of Amaziah is that he's got Amos's motives prejudged he's made some really interesting assumptions about Amos like before he even meets Amos he's persuaded that he understands what Amos is trying to do like in verse 12, when he finally does speak to Amos, you can see what those, what those assumptions are. He says in verse 12, Get out, you seer. Go back to the land of Judah. Earn your bread there and do your prophesying there. Like in other words, Amaziah thinks that Amos is this professional traveling prophet. Like he can just pick up and, and leave Bethel and he can go preach anywhere he wants. Because it really doesn't matter where he is. He can teach anywhere he wants. And, and that's just not true. You see, Amaziah isn't listening. And again, I bet most of us have been in conflicts where the person that we're in conflict with, they, they, they actually had their mind made up about us before they even had conversation. They, they didn't listen to our ideas. They didn't listen to our arguments because of the assumptions that they'd made about us. You've been through that. Of course you have. And if you have, you realize how, how hard it is to resolve a conflict with someone who disagrees with ideas that you don't have. Let me say that again. It is almost impossible to resolve a conflict with someone who disagrees with ideas that you don't have. Well, one more thing to notice uh, about Amaziah here is how he just is so manipulative. He plays the victim. 
Okay, he plays the victim. We can see from the language that he uses here, it's, it's like he'd like us to believe that he's the good guy and Amos is the bad guy. He'd like to frame this as good versus evil, okay? He's the priest. He's on God's side. He's got the king on his side. He serves the people. And then on the other side, here over there is mean, judgmental, divisive Amos. And so he tells the king, King, the land cannot bear all his words. Like, oh no, we got to stop him. He's, if, we, if we let him continue, it's going to mean disaster. He's going to hurt us. But listen to this in verse 13. He tells Amos, don't prophesy anymore at Bethel. Because this is the king's sanctuary. This is the temple of the kingdom. And it's not hard for me to imagine, you know, that everybody who's looking on and watching this exchange, they suddenly like burst into applause for Amaziah. Because Amaziah has had the courage to stand up to this Amos. Like, oh, thank goodness for you, Amaziah. Amos is mean and divisive. He's nobody. He doesn't know what we've been through. He doesn't understand how hard it is for us up here. You see, if, if Amaziah can make Amos look like a jerk, if he, can, if he can make Amos look like a bully, he can generate a lot of pity. You know, he can score a lot of sympathy points and he can win. Now, again, I bet most of you can relate to that. We've been in conflicts where instead of dealing with the problem, they accuse you of being divisive. Instead of listening to your arguments, instead of listening to the problem, they accuse you of being insensitive. If you're, you're a woman, you might be able to relate to this, but when you were in conflict with a man who accused you of being domineering, you know, being opinionated and domineering, and you just need to smile and you just need to like relax a little bit and let us, you know, let us men uh, take, take control of the situation and then everything's going to work out just fine. You've been through situations like this. And it's just one more way that Amaziah fights dirty. He gossips and he lies. He manipulates and he judges and discredits Amos in the eyes of the king and all the people. And at the end of that, it's like, what should Amos do? Gosh, like, how should he respond? Well, first, let's talk about what he shouldn't do, okay? Because here's, here's some ways that he might respond badly, okay? Amos has some options here. Here's some ways that he might respond badly. It seems to me like if this were a 1980s movie, uh, then maybe one of the things, maybe one of the ways that Amos responds is, is that he, like, trains. He gets himself into shape. And there would be this, like, montage of Amos doing sit-ups and punching the punching bag and doing jump rope and there'd be this great you know rock ballad playing in the background and once Amos, once Amos is trained he can challenge Amaziah and he's going to be the new priest by putting Amaziah in his place so that's maybe how it might unfold or maybe Amos gathers a bunch of his friends and then they they gang up and corner Amaziah at the temple and they embarrass him and they force him to uh you know, resign. Maybe they pour a milkshake over his head just for just for a couple of laughs. Or maybe one of the ways Amos responds is maybe he just retires from prophecy altogether. He he gets real low. He listens to Amaziah. He goes off and he quits and he maybe gets a job in a garage somewhere. And then someone comes along and is like, no, Amos, I remember when you were the prophet. Things were better. You've got to come back. You must return. And then Amaziah returns out of nowhere and he knocks down Amaziah with one punch. And everybody cheers. Roll credits. Well, obviously, we, I think we'd say that's not okay. 
we'd say that that's not okay because you're just fighting fire with fire. And, and after all, Romans 4 says, do not repay anyone evil for evil. So we're not going to just put the bully in his place by fighting him back and beating him at his own game, okay? On the other hand, you might not have a better alternative. Because depending on how you grew up, you may never have seen conflict handled well. Some of you, you grew up in homes and you grew up in churches where the parents and, and leaders there, they fought constantly. So that wasn't healthy. On the other hand, some of you, you never saw adults argue. You never saw your parents resolve conflicts. You never saw adults engage in a disagreement in healthy ways. And so what you learned is that when adults disagree, that's the same as division. Like it's evil. There's no place for it among God's people. And so we don't engage in conflict because we, we believe blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Okay, we, we avoid conflict. We back down from a bully and we think that that's the important thing to do. We think that that's the moral, virtuous thing to do. We'll even apologize, many of us. We'll apologize when we know that we've done nothing wrong. We'll leave a church when we know that we have done nothing wrong. We'll do all these things that look like grace. They look like character and virtue. They look like mercy. But really, it's, it, maybe it's just, it's cowardice. If I may say, maybe it's self-righteousness. Just that's kind of masquerading as virtue. And I got to tell you, okay, that's not better. That's not better. Let's Let's recall the words of James, brother of Jesus, who says, if anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. Like, you know what's sin? It's sin if you know what you're supposed to do, if you know the good that you ought to do and you don't do it. That's sin too. And if that's true, then when Amaziah is in your face and you like punch him out and you stand over him and point in his face and laugh, that's sinful, of course. And... If we bury our heads in the sand and we never speak of it, like that's the moral high ground or something, that is sinful too. Okay? They're both sinful because those are just two different ways of using power selfishly. Don't you agree? Those are just two different ways of using power selfishly. In fact, if we only ever approach conflict as a, as a power struggle, we will only be left with winners and losers. And that's not what we want. Amos, Amos isn't going to get sucked into a power struggle. He's not going to let it be about winning and losing. In fact, look at his response. So here's, some, here's, the, here's how Amos responds to conflict. He's going to actually just double down on his sense of calling. And it begins with him correcting Amaziah's assumptions. Verses 14, 15, he says, I was neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet, but I was a shepherd and I also took care of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from tending the flock and said to me, go prophesy to my prophesy to my people Israel. Like, I'm not a professional. This isn't career advancement for me. I, I didn't even choose this. I was chosen. Now, that's really important. Amaziah thinks he's got Amos all figured out. It hasn't even entered his mind. It's not even on his radar that Amos might have been sent by God after all. Well, then in verse 16, we see Amos doesn't defend himself. He's not going to stick up for himself. He's not going to um, you know, defend himself against the lies that Amaziah has told. All he's going to do is defend his right to speak. This is really interesting. He's communicating to, to Amaziah, these aren't my ideas that I'm, I'm sharing. This is the word of the Lord. So hear the word of the Lord, Amaziah. 
Like this is Amos saying, I have no authority here of my own. I've got no power uh, or influence here on my own as Amos. These are not my words that I'm sharing with you. This is God's word. Listen to it. Man, is that ever helpful? What a great example for us. But that's not it. Because it's not. he's not finished. Because in verse 17, then he's going to go and he's just going to tell the truth of Amaziah. In fact, that truth is personal. He's going to, he's basically like, let's, let's set aside kings and temples, Amaziah. Let's just talk for a minute about what I've seen for you. Now, this is serious. He's like, a day is coming, Amaziah, when your wife is going to be attacked by so many men that it's like she's a prostitute. And your sons and daughters are going to be killed. You'll lose your sons and daughters. You're going to lose your property. You're going to die far from the promised land, Amaziah. Way, way, way off in Assyria. Now, Amos has just told Amaziah the truth. He's told him the truth for his own good. He's not lying or exaggerating. He's not gloating. He's not gossiping. He's not rubbing it in Amaziah's face. He's just telling the truth. Now, what, what is, what's just happened here? What's just happened is that Amos has been transformed before the eyes of Amaziah. When Amaziah meets Amos, he assumes he's just a troublemaker. He can be ignored. He can be put in his place easily. But now he's learned this guy is so secure in God that he can't be moved. He can't be bullied. He can't be messed with. And Amaziah's tricks don't work on someone like this. Now, this is really important. Here's why this is so important. Suppose you had a burden from God to say or to do something in this city or in your workplace or in your neighborhood. And you were like, I know that God has put me here to do this thing. And maybe it's like, maybe it's like speaking up to people about your uh, concerns about the education system. You want to bring some reform there. Maybe it's about like supporting kids whose parents are putting them through gender reassignment. That's, that's an issue that's really important to you. Suppose you want to help churches and homes and organizations be more energy conscious. Or we could go on and on. Like, suppose for you, you were really passionate to see the lives of unborn children saved from abortion. Okay? Suppose you wanted to see the poor provided with safe and clean housing, even if that means it's in the same neighborhood as the wealthy. Suppose you wanted to call out some popular elected leader because he or she has become corrupt. Suppose you wanted to shut down some of the payday loan joints or the the cannabis shops in this city. Suppose you wanted to just be faithful and honor Jesus with your body and with your lifestyle. And so you decided you're going to abstain from some of the things that your peers and your classmates and your colleagues are into. Well, whatever it is, whatever is your burden, How long before you face opposition? How long before you face criticism and insults and accusations because of the stance that you've taken? Well, of course it's going to come. People will make all kinds of assumptions about you if you attempt to live a life that is consistent with your beliefs about Jesus. If you try to live for his kingdom, while we live in this kingdom, of course, there are going to be people who gossip about you behind your back and they're going to lie about you and they're going to accuse you of being evil or intolerant or hateful. And when it happens, one choice is that you might fight back and sin by repaying evil for evil. Or 
you might shrink back and quit and like lie about whether you have done something wrong and you might apologize even though you know you've done nothing wrong and you might pretend that what they did didn't bother you and and that's a lie too and you might post online about your persecution and you might sin in all these ways by by failing to do the good you know you ought to do and either of these is a terrible choice but what if there was a third way What if there was a third choice between these two? And I think that there is. And I want to remind us today, if you're a follower of Jesus, you can do what Amos did. And more, in fact, okay? If you're you're a follower of Christ today, you can do what Amos did with Amaziah, and even more, and greater. Because we have some things that that Amos didn't have. We have the cross. We've seen the cross. We, We know the gospel. We have the Holy Spirit. And it's like, if this is true, we have like a hundred times more confidence than, than Amos did. Don't you think? Don't you think that that's true? It seems to me Jesus shows us in his life a whole different way for us to think about power. Like he's the one who has all the power in the universe and he sets it aside and he never used it for his own sake. Like and at any time, Jesus could have called down a legion of angels to wipe out the Romans, wipe out the Pharisees, and set him up as emperor, except he knows that that's not how his kingdom works. Instead, we look at the life of Jesus, we see him, he's constantly interrupted by these people who are, who are begging for help, and he, he could have used his power to send them away. And instead, he serves them. He gives his power away. He cures their diseases. He casts out their demons. He raises them from the dead. He always used his power for other people, not himself. And then on the cross, Jesus is hanging there dying and the crowds are mocking him and saying like, hey, if you're the Messiah, why don't you come down from there? Why not use your Messiah powers and save yourself? That's what they think he should have done. If he he had powers, he should certainly use them. To save himself, what they didn't get is that it's because he's the Messiah that he had to suffer so that he could conquer the powers of of Satan and sin and death. And he did. And he crushed those powers. And now, the power by which he destroyed those powers, that power comes to you. That power comes to you and says, hey, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Okay, this is from Romans 8. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, he's at the right hand of of God and is also interceding for us. Paul asks, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So whatever whatever you once were, okay, whatever you had done wrong, whatever ways you failed to measure up, whatever a bully might have used against you, Jesus died for that, all right? Like, like Jesus took care of that. That's forgiven. It's history. And you are not that person anymore. And now Paul asks, so if God is for you in all of these ways, who can be against you? Who can accuse you? Who can intimidate you? And it's like, yeah, nobody. Nobody can. 
like when you when you know when you deeply know that God is for you it's actually not a big deal when there are people against you and when you know that God hand chose you when you know that he chose you personally you're not so threatened by what bullies think of you you know what i mean when when you know that jesus is at his father's side right now and he's up there and he's saying hey don't believe a word of what amaziah says about that one that one is with me you see you see ronnie right there you don't believe what amaziah says about ronnie cuz ronnie's with me you see that you see emily over there you don't believe what the enemy is saying about Emily because she's with me. Don't you see? Like if the gospel is true, then you know, you know that no matter what anybody says, no matter what anybody does, they can't successfully condemn you. Not if the gospel is true. I mean, if the gospel is not true, of course, this is all a waste of time. What are we even doing here? If the gospel isn't true, if this is just like some made up tradition or something that we tell ourselves to feel better, this is all a waste of time. But if the gospel is true, then no one can successfully condemn you. And I'm like, man, what if we believed that? What if we knew beyond the shadow of a doubt that no matter what Amaziah says about you, you can, you can still live? What if you really believed that Amaziah can't hurt you? Okay? What if you really believe that he can't hurt you? That even if he does try, like even if he does hurt you in, in some small sense, he can't ultimately harm you in the ways that really matter. What if you really believed that? What if, you, what if no matter how often, no matter how mean Amaziah was to you, you could, be still, you could f- still be full of gratitude and joy and even compassion for Amaziah, even, even love for compassion. And if the gospel is true, then we can. Like if the gospel is true, then in Jesus, we are more than conquerors. This is the good news. This is our gospel. Like if this is true, then in Christ, we are more powerful than we could have imagined. Certainly we are stronger than, than, than Amos could have imagined in his day. Don't you think? Now let's come back to where we started. How will we respond to a, a bully. How will we respond well? What what have we learned? What's our what's our anti-bullying strategy going to be? Okay, let's talk about that. Well, we know we're not going to sin by punching out Amaziah. Okay, but we also let's agree we're not going to sin by pretending that Amaziah doesn't hurt us. No, once we've put our faith in Jesus, we're remade, we're reborn, we're not weak and meek and powerless, and we're also not all powerful. We're not like superheroes. We are something different. We are the kind of people that a bully wouldn't dare mess with because we have an identity and we have a strength and we have a calling that is beyond the reach of any bully. Okay? In the gospel, we have this like endless source of strength. Okay? We are endlessly powerful. You with me on that? The gospel makes you endlessly powerful so that no matter how much power the bully takes from you, you always have more. That's what the gospel does. No matter how much the power the bully takes from you, and he can, but no matter how much he takes from you, you will always have more. And it's like, how do you conquer someone like that? How can a bully win against someone like that? They they can't. 
someone like you can't be conquered. You can't. And the world has no category for someone like you. And this is how we do mission. This is how we accept the burdens that Jesus has given us. This is how we accept our calling and we go and we follow him and we do mission in the city until it is in Hamilton as it is in heaven. Thanks for listening to this message from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Feel free to copy and share these resources, but please don't alter the content in any way. We invite you to visit us online again soon at www.benediction.church for more teaching and information about how you can join us in serving and praying that it would be in Hamilton as it is in heaven.